Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Welcome back to Concord Matters, where we speak about the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and our triune God with the goal and the ideal of coming to unity, Concord, because here in Christ's church, Concord matters. And today on Concord Matters, I am Pastor Peter Ill, serving as the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois, and getting to serve as guest host here on Concord Matters for Pastor Sean Smith, who is out taking care of some family business in these days before Easter. But he looks forward to returning soon. Joining us today on Concord Matters is Pastor David Oberdeek. Pastor Oberdeek gets to serve God's people as pastor at the... at. Trinity Lutheran Church in Lebanon, Missouri, and he gets to serve as a, a U.S. Army Reserve chaplain, uh, but serving alongside the regular forces of uh, the United States Army. So, Pastor Oberdeek, thank you so much for taking some time out right here before Easter to talk with us about the Athanasian Creed. Yeah, it's good to be with you, Peter. Today, as we talk about the Athanasian Creed, we will particularly be picking up with the second part. Uh, a lot of times when people think about this Athanasian Creed, this longest of our three creeds that we confess together with the whole church, we often start to think about the part where it says that we believe in one God, uh, not three gods, and we talk about there being one God with three persons. But the second part of the creed, kind of the second half, really becomes focused on not so much the persons of the Trinity, but especially on Jesus and how he exists as God and man. Pastor Oberdeek, what was going on with the teaching of, about Jesus at the time that the Athanasian Creed was written that would make it so important to have these profound statements about who Jesus is and what his ministry uh, is like? Well, you know, you had various forms of conflict within the church, um, you know, Jew-Gentile issues very early on. And then you had the Christological issues with Arius and uh, spreading his theology through music and so forth, uh, basically saying Christ was a created being, that he was uh, the greatest of God's creations. But he, he wasn't God himself. He was a God, not the God. and uh, and so you had a denial of, in that way, a denial of the Trinity. Okay. And so as the Trinity was being denied, it seems like saying that Jesus was uh, a creation or maybe even the greatest part of the creation would really have a, a profound impact on how people believed and talked about Jesus, our Lord. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and that 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 touches not just on how they talk about Jesus, 
but then how does that affect how they talk about uh, the gospel and the, the work of grace? You, you know, you touch on the Trinity and you deny the Trinity and you deny who Christ is. Well, that touches on everything. It touches on the first article dealing with creation, the second article dealing not with just the Son, but what the Son does with redemption, and it touches on the Holy Spirit and the work of sanctification. So, uh, you know, you start uh, messing with one bit of theology, and it can go a long way and affect a whole lot more. Well, we have a chance to get right into uh, these issues about how we talk about Jesus and how the creed helps us to come to this greater understanding of Concord. Uh, we will be working today from the Athanasian Creed, as it's printed uh, both in the Lutheran Service Book on pages 319 and 320, and the same translation appears also in Concordia, uh, the reader's edition published by Concordia Publishing House. And the part that the part of the Athanasian Creed that we are considering today is especially printed in Lutheran Service Book on page 320. And it's identified with the stanza number, the paragraph number, uh, beginning at 26, going through the end. And that portion of the creed we're thinking about today goes like this. Therefore, Whoever desires to be saved must think thus about the Trinity, but it is also necessary for everlasting salvation that one faithfully believes in the incarnation of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is the right faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ is, the Son of God, is at the same time both God and man. He is God, begotten from the substance of the Father before all ages, and he is man, born of the substance of his mother in this age. Perfect God and perfect man, composed of a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father with respect to his divinity, less than the Father with respect to his humanity. Although he is God and man, he is not two but one Christ, one, however, not by the conversion of the divinity into flesh, but by the assumption of the humanity into God, one altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For as the rational soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into hell rose again on the third day from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father, God Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. At his coming, all people will rise again with their bodies and give an account concerning their own deeds. And those who have done good will enter into eternal life, and those who have done evil into eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. Whoever does not believe it faithfully and firmly cannot be saved. Pastor Oberdeek, as it talks about the job of a Christian and the role of a Christian uh, believing in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, 
it seems to be a pretty big deal that it starts with this idea that Jesus is at the same time God and man. Yeah, absolutely. And and by the way, it's in the incarnation that now we see uh, the coming forth of the mystery of the Trinity that was not being revealed fully in the Old Testament, but now is in the New Testament. And it's a big thing because it means, of course, Jesus becoming the servant to take upon himself our sin. So without incarnation, there, there isn't salvation. And so here comes Jesus in his incarnation. Mm-hmm. Help us with this this really profound teaching about how he, Jesus is, I almost want to say can be, but it's, uh, maybe it's best not to talk about what God can and cannot be. Uh, but as we talk about Jesus being God and man at the same time, it doesn't seem that the math or the thinking or the logic or the reason of this adds up. Is there a way that we can continue to look into this without saying more than Scripture says? You know, that that could be a challenge. Uh, we, we don't want to say more than what Scripture says. And, and sometimes the church is pushed more and more into definitions and defining terms because of controversy and so forth. And that's how we get the creeds in the first place. But, you know, Thinking about who God is biblically will definitely have to make some definitions and uh, put some fences up and and things of that nature. It's complicated at times, and God is beyond us. And, And we ought not to dumb down our understanding of God just to make it amenable to our reason. Uh, You know, Luther talked about this in Oh, his Genesis commentary. And he says, there are those who think about God as they would a pig and a cow. You know, he says, they do their thinking about God with the same sureness with which they argue about a pig or a cow. Our assurance and our our knowing is only the knowing of the scripture, how God has revealed himself to us. And that we hold to, that we confess and uh, don't go beyond it. So there comes a point when we use uh, all of the words that scripture has given us and some of the teachings that scripture has given us, but we, we're really careful in our use of the creeds not to say more about God than he has revealed to us Uh, in scripture. What are some of the ways that people uh, might have gone beyond what scripture says about about how God shows himself? Um, Was there ever a time when uh, the church was confronted with a teaching that uh, there was uh, one God with only one person? Well, uh, you know, you can get in, well, right. Modalism is an example of that. Uh, so that, you know, there there is one God, as we would say, with the Trinity, but they would say there is one God and no persons of the Trinity. There's just, there's just one. And so uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are, are more like masks that God puts on and takes off. 
uh, sort of, you know, use an analogy. Here I am. Uh, I'm at my church right now. I'm pastor. When I go home, I'm dad to my kids uh, and I'm husband to my wife. Uh, just just different modes, just different masks, different vocations. And so there certainly are those who uh, uh, teach a modalism. And oh, by the way, that's not just something present in church history. Don't be surprised if you have people in your own congregation uh, that might think the same thing, because it's amenable, right? It's it's easy to understand. So it, it you don't have to do any digging in scriptures to say that. It makes sense to me how somebody could come could come with that idea and understanding, but it seems very very clear that here. In Scripture, it is revealed that uh, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all distinct persons of the Trinity, and they are revealed in their own distinct ways. Oh, um, one, yeah. Go ahead. No, uh, uh, that is uh, that is absolutely true, and you can't get uh, through the New Testament without seeing that. Now, now I, I've heard some people that come from this modalistic heresy who will say, hey, you guys, you Trinitarians are wrong. And why is that? Uh, because you're going to the New Testament first. What you got to do is go to the Old Testament first and begin with the foundations of the faith. And Yahweh is only one. He's just numerically one. And, and so, so you got to understand the Trinity in light of the oneness of the Old Testament. No, 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 no. No, that's idiotic. You know, if God shows us something new, we go with the understanding of what is new that fully reveals what is in the old. We understand that in any number of places, like the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Now we understand them to be foreshadowings of the greater sacrifice to come in Christ. And so as it deals with God in the Old Testament, um, he is one. We absolutely confess that. But now we have a greater understanding in the New Testament with the Trinity. And what a blessed understanding it is, isn't it? Uh, that the whole Godhead is involved with our salvation in one way or another. That God in his entirety is on our side working for our salvation. Uh, the, the Father loves us, the Son loves us, the Holy Spirit loves us, uh, the Father sends the Son, the Son dies for our sins, and the Holy Spirit brings us to an understanding and conviction of that. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, and and there's, there's plenty of passages in the New Testament that show a distinction uh, between the persons of the Trinity. If you want to get into the, any of that, we can look at a passage. Uh, Maybe let's hold off on that, because as you were talking, it really reminded me of the way that the Athanasian Creed speaks uh, in paragraph number uh, 29, where it mm -hmm. talks about Jesus saying, he is God, begotten from the substance of the Father before all ages, and he is man, born from the substance of his mother in this age. And that mm -hmm. speaks to that profound teaching and understanding that you had mentioned before, that here is God 
in the flesh, from the substance of the Father, but also from the sub- substance of humanity, from his own mother. Right. Uh, that's, the, that's the Christmas story, right? Luke chapter 2. You know, the son of Mary, the son of God. You've rendered me speechless. Uh, oh. Usually that's pretty hard to do, but, it, but I think perhaps we don't take enough time as a church uh, and as the church as a whole to simply contemplate that mystery, the mystery of, of Christmas, the mystery of the incarnation of here is Jesus, of the substance of the father, of the substance of his mother, being mm-hmm. completely and totally both God and man. Mm-hmm. And this is certainly something worth considering and worth reflecting on, that when we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about part God and part man. Uh, we're not talking about uh, these these two sides of God or these two portions of Jesus that can be pulled apart. I know other places in the Lutheran confessions, we talk about how it isn't like Christ, our Lord is two boards that are glued together that can be pulled apart. Instead, we say wherever the, wherever Christ's divine nature is, his human nature is there too. And wherever Christ's human nature is, his divine nature is right alongside. And these two natures are indivisible. There is one Christ, not two and not two parts, but just one Christ who has both a human nature or substance and a divine or godly nature or substance. Right, right. And and in church history, there's a fellow named Nestorius. Uh, all that you're talking about goes back to him. I, I believe, what, did he die around what, the middle of the fifth century, I believe. And he was doing that. He's, you know, it's so hard. It's so hard when you want reason. We use reason, right? Ministerial use of reason, not the magisterial use. That is reason in service to scripture, not reason above scripture. Uh, but it's so easy to do that. And Nestorius was doing just that. Using those ministerial and magisterial words, can you can you kind of unpack how we use reason appropriately in the church and how how we don't? And what what do those ministerial and magisterial words mean? Okay, so yeah, very much uh, ministerial use of reason. Uh, God has given you a brain. You've gone to school. You know English. You know the difference between subjects and verbs and objects. You read the Bible and you use your reason to understand it. That is uh, grammar, literature. Uh, Magisterial use of reason would simply say, well, I mean, you can say a number of things, but, ah, oh, can I give you an example I just read? Please do. Uh, I just read an essay from a theologian uh, writing in 1916, and he was talking about how modern theologians talk about Christ. And he said that it's all based on scientific fact. And then he gave three things that we can know about Jesus based on scientific fact. And uh, that's a magisterial use of reason because here are the three things. He says, we can know that Jesus lived about the time we think he lived. Uh, We can know that Jesus is the sort of person that the New Testament talks about. Now, that's not going to necessarily mean divinity, trinity, uh, incarnation, uh, death and resurrection. You you know, we're just talking rationalism. And then the, the, the last one was... And, and Christianity is based on Jesus. So that's it. 
Those are the three things that we know. That's magisterial use of reason where we say we're going to cut everything out that does not uh, conform to that. So in terms of that magisterial use of reason, that's when reason starts to drive to drive the theology and starts to kind of drive the bus. Uh, and so to say, well, we know this about God because, uh, because it's just logical, that would be a magisterial use of reason, right? Right, right. You, you know, I, uh, I went to, oh, golly, the first Lutheran college I went to, which will remain nameless, was not a Missouri Senate college. And I remember my uh, intro to theology professor saying basically these things. There is no heaven or hell. Being happy is being saved with your life. Therefore, any religion saves. You got to take the myths out of the Bible like the resurrection, but you can accept them through a leap of faith. And there is no Holy Spirit. Oh, and then he went on to do a, a, a terrible little uh, anecdote to dismiss the belief in the Holy Spirit. That's all reason or mm, rationalism driving the Bible instead of the Bible driving our faith. And on the other hand, that ministerial use of reason is when we take what Scripture has revealed to us and what God himself reveals to us, and we say, okay, so we can use our words and our subjects and verbs and objects in our English grammar and we can say things that God has revealed to us, but there's going to probably become a time when we run out of words because we we can't fully understand and comprehend uh, the mysteries of God. Is that a correct understanding of that ministerial use of reason? Yes, that's very good, Peter. You did good. Uh, <laughs> I all right, I'm learning. <laughs> Um, well, so as we get to continue this conversation, we talk about Jesus, who is uh, of both substances, and that's a word that that we have applied as we've been talking through the ministerial use of reason. That word "substance" isn't used in the uh, in the scriptures to talk about God, but it's something that started with the Nicene Creed, and then we've continued using. We also use the word person that way to talk about the, that substance. But then the creed goes on to talk about Jesus describing him as perfect. He is perfect God and perfect man. But Pastor Oberdeek, this is kind of befuddling because when you or I think about a person um, or a man or a human, we at least I can't conceptualize a perfect man. What does it mean when we say that Jesus is the perfect man? Well, first of all, I would say a couple things here. One, he, uh, he's true. He's true God, true man. And being true God and true man, he is also perfect in his being, certainly sinless. Uh, but his humanity itself is not only perfect that is sinless, it is a true humanity at the same time. Uh, just like, uh, not just like, but, you know, Adam, the first man without sin, uh, without the corruption of the body, and, uh, and so forth, except Jesus being more because he's also true God. And after the fall, we you and I have a really hard time, and our listeners too, thinking about what does it mean to be perfect. There's a certain amount of, of inability to comprehend what Adam experienced and Eve 
in the Garden of Eden and in their perfection. Uh, but here is Jesus being kind of Adam. Well, no, I don't want to say it this way. Uh, I don't want to say he's like Adam all over again, but also God, because that sounds like it's just an upgrade on Adam. Instead, Adam is a reflection of Jesus without being divine. That's probably a mm. better way to say that, right? Oh, boy, you're good. I like that. That's very good. So here comes Jesus, the perfect man and perfect God, being completely and totally human. And then it starts to talk about how Jesus is equal to God in respect to his divinity, but less than God in regards to his humanity. Uh, this, can you help us with, with that understanding? And is Jesus equal to the Father? Is Jesus less than the Father? How how do we use our ministerial use of reason to uh, to put words to this? Well, you know, we use our ministerial use of reason by going to the Bible and seeing what the Bible says. Why is Jesus equal to the Father? Uh, well, you know, John five eighteen. Uh, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He's God is his father in that unique sense of the Trinity. Uh, so they have the same substance, right? Uh, I, I have the same substance as my parents. I am human. Jesus has the same substance as uh, as the Heavenly Father. And because of that, they are equal. He is true God. You know, you go throughout the scripture and you see that, right? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Um, and, uh, you, you, you know, the lesser, I, I love the way the creed puts this, less than the father with respect to his humanity. I mean, clear as crystal. And that helps us to understand these various portions of scripture, which we may be confused on. Yeah, I mean, there's always uh, this difference here. Uh, equal to God with his substance, lesser, less uh, than the Father because of the incarnation, because of the flesh. Earlier, you were talking about how um, the whole Godhead loves us. God the Father so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, in the incarnation to die and to rise again for us. And the Holy Spirit brings us to that faith and that certainty. Uh, and so when you start to use words like the Father sends the Son, and the Father and the Son together send the Holy Spirit, it starts to sound like there's there's marching orders involved. Um, and so you're... You're saying that even when the Father sends the Son, that's in terms of the Son's humanity and not in terms of the Son being a less important person of the Trinity than the Father. The Son is not a less important uh, person of the Trinity with the Father, but the Son humbled himself so that everything that Jesus did in his incarnation, in this earthly ministry, he did according to the will of the Father. You know, he was guided always by the Father. You know, Lord, if it is possible, take this cup from me, not my will, but yours be done. And so, so 
Jesus was not an unwilling participant in the atonement. Jesus loved us just as much as the Father loved us, and his love drove him forward too and uh, and uh, brought him to the place of submission, brought him to the place of humiliation. That reminds me quite a bit of this reading uh, from Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 11, where mm-hmm. it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Here is our promise that we have a Savior who is equal to God, but didn't count that as something to be grasped or held on to, but instead humbled himself to the form of a servant, even dying on a cross for you and for me. Uh, We will take a little bit of a break here, and we will be back in just a moment. Once again, this is Concord Matters on Worldwide KFUO, and we are visiting with Pastor David Oberdeek, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Lebanon, Missouri, uh, and we will be back in just a minute here on Concord Matters. Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Pastor Brady Finner. I am humbled to be the new host of Thy Strong Word every weekday from 11 to noon. We will receive the gift of God's Word and Paul's epistles for our new series. We will travel with Paul from city to city, from letter to letter, as he encourages, exhorts, proclaims, and points us to Christ and Him crucified for your forgiveness. Join us, live or on demand, because God has gifts to give for you. Welcome back to Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO. I am Pastor Peter Ill sitting in for regular Concord Matters host, Pastor Sean Smith, who is out taking care of some family and congregational things, but he looks forward to being back soon. Today on Concord Matters, we're talking about the second part of the Athanasian Creed and how it talks about our Lord Jesus Christ. And we get to visit today with Pastor David Oberdeek, who is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Lebanon, Missouri. And it is wonderful to have him with us. And as we were getting up to the break, I started to talk about Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, and we read that. And then during the break, Pastor Oberdeek mentioned to me that he has a couple of things to add on this wonderful and helpful uh, scripture passage. So, Pastor Oberdeek, what can we pay attention to here in Philippians chapter 2? Well, it's just an awesome text of scripture. But a couple of items, note there in verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. There are so many ways that the divinity of Christ comes across in the Bible. And this is one of them, because that is quoted from the Old Testament 
Isaiah 45, verse 23, and it is the Lord speaking, that is Yahweh, who is saying that every knee will bow to me. This is a clear statement of the divinity of Jesus Christ. It, it just brings it across in a different way. It doesn't bring it across in a way that you might see in a dogmatics text. It brings it across in the way the Bible often does do things. Uh, highly exalted him. That's that's divine talk. You know, that, that absolutely reminds us of the fourth servant song in Isaiah. In Isaiah 52, uh, let's see, verse 13, uh, my servant will prosper. He'll be high, lifted up and greatly exalted. And then a little bit later, he's going to be marred beyond recognition. Oh my goodness, that is the amazing 700 years before Jesus was born declaration of what Jesus would do and who he was, that he was true God, this, this whole concept of high, lifted up, or in Philippians, highly exalted, that's God talk. That's God talk. And uh, it's just amazing when you get into it and you see uh, the, the myriad of ways that his divinity shines through. As Jesus' divinity shines through, it almost makes me wonder if there may have been a point at which people thought that because Jesus was both God and man, his divinity got lessened. Is that a biblical thing to say? No, no. The, the divine always is divine. God is never less than God. Uh, you, you, you know, Jesus can can let go of using his divine authority and prerogatives and power in, in the sense that uh, he learned, he grew, right? This is all connected to his uh, human nature, but his divine nature is not thereby diminished. A matter of fact, well, you know, that gets into paragraph 33 there. Can do you want me to read that? Pretty please do. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm going to start at... Uh, Paragraph 32, although he is God and man, he is not two, but one Christ. And, and that gets into Nestorius you were talking about. One, however, not by the conversion of the divinity into flesh, but by the assumption of humanity into God. And I've always understood that to mean that the divine is not, um, it is not less divine. God is not less God, but the humanity has some powers given to it through the divine nature. And, and uh, we see that in the Bible. You want a for instance, Peter? Oh, that would be wonderful. Okay, let me give you two for instances. One is communion. Uh, that, you know, isn't it awesome that we can confess that the same Jesus we received this Sunday in Holy Communion is the same Jesus believers in Christ received throughout the world. And that is impossible, uh, uh, except that, uh, that, that human nature has received the power from the divine. Um, yeah, go ahead. And especially to say that when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he says, this is my body. This is my blood. Body and blood are parts of his human nature. Uh, the Father doesn't have body and blood. The Spirit doesn't have body and blood, but Jesus does. Right. And he gives us that human and divine body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins and life and salvation, right? 
Right, so that the, that, that the Godhead as a whole does not share in the human nature. That's just, a, that's just Jesus, the, third, uh, the second person of the Trinity. And it's the same thing, by the way, with his suffering. You know, the Father didn't die for our sins. The Spirit didn't die for our sins. Only Jesus died for our sins, which is, you know, beyond my understanding. But thus the Scripture says. So when it talks about how humanity is assumed into the Godhead, I, I, I'm, I, I'm trying to turn this over in my mind. And I know sometimes when I get to talk about the Athanasian Creed and teach uh, based on the scriptures behind it in Bible class, this idea of humanity or Jesus' humanity being assumed into the Godhead, I, I really struggle with this. Can you help me with it? Well, okay. I'm sorry you struggle with it, Peter, but really, you're a seminary grad. You should do better. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, uh, well, or- it, it's it, well. I, I I don't think I can say anything more except what I've said. And basically, the divine is not diminished, but the human is enhanced in the sense of we talked about with communion, as we saw with Jesus appearing behind closed doors at the resurrection in John chapter 20, in the sense of 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, you know, two natures, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin, uh, that, 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 that divinity, that the divine is not lessened one iota, uh, but, uh, but forever uh, Christ has, uh, has become true man, right? He is uh, the true God and true man, and it is not something he discarded at his resurrection, but it's something that continues on with him and shares uh, that, that power of the divine. So it's a direction that the divinity improves the humanity, but yes. not that the humanity affects or impacts the, uh, the, the divinity of Jesus. And I think the, the, the technical term for that is communication of attributes, right? Yeah. Of which, of which way uh, that divinity to humanity flows, and not that the, uh, that the humanity of Jesus lessens his divinity, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, the divine is still the divine. It's uh, just now in the in his humanity in the one G. And we and you know we got to be careful that we don't parse Jesus too much, right? There is one Jesus, and what he did in his ministry, he did as Jesus. Uh, yeah, there are divine attributes, there are human attributes, but there is just one Jesus. And when Jesus died, I mean, it's a mystery. Oh my goodness! It's it cramps the mind to you know to to think of the uh, amazing gift that God has given us in Christ. And I apologize. I cut you off before. You said you had two, for instances, and I only let you get through one. I yeah, I, so I already, I already gave them to you. I gave you, I oh, gave okay. you three communion behind. You know, Jesus going behind. behind uh, locked doors, uh, the, the blood of uh, Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Peter, your blood, your blood won't cleanse uh, the world of, of unrighteousness. Your blood can't, even if Peter were perfect, Peter's blood still wouldn't do it. Only 
God's son, his blood could do it. See, the, the, the human nature of Christ takes on a majesty because of the divine. And we could also talk about, say, the miracles of Jesus during his ministry before his ascension as being those uh, times when his humanity would do things because it was changed by his divinity, right? So when Jesus walked on water, uh, his body was really doing that, but it was his body because it was influenced by his divine nature, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh I, and I want to make sure that we save some time to talk about uh, what, for many Christians, is one of the more oh, one of the parts of the creed that leads to lots of questions. Mm. Uh, when we get near the end, in paragraph uh, thirty-eight and thirty-nine, it says, "At his coming, all people will rise again with their bodies and give an account concerning their own deeds, and those who have done good will enter into eternal life." and those who have done evil into eternal fire. Pastor Oberdeek, how is it that we are judged by God? Okay, first of all, you should have started with this because we can spend a couple hours here. But uh, <laughs> I'll learn. I'm just sitting in, so we'll, we'll, I'll right. figure it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you're new at this. But, uh, uh, you know, we're judged by God first and foremost. We need to keep in mind we're judged by God in Christ. You know, God, God looks at us with rose colored glasses. He sees us through the blood of his son. And, and, and so uh, let me make this statement very clear. Wh whenever you go to a scripture passage where it talks about uh, judgment and so forth, we need to understand uh, that we never, as God's children, worry, need worry about our salvation that is that it's in question and we won't know it until the the last day as if in judgment day then we'll find out if we're saved or not then we'll find out if we're forgiven or not no we have it now as paul says in romans 8 1 we have peace with god so whatever mm, Whatever passage ever says anything about judgment, the child of God needs to keep in mind, I am saved through Christ. I am saved through his blood. And now from that, let's go talk the details type of thing. Because you can look at some passages of scripture, like for instance, I don't want to get into it now. Maybe you want to get to it later. But just as a quick reference, you know, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15, you can talk about that in regards to rewards and things of that nature. But the Christian needs to have a firm basis that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. And your salvation is not in question. Those works will come into play in Judgment Day, and they come into play, I think, for a couple of reasons. Uh, probably, I don't know, probably three reasons. Yeah, probably three. Okay, and what are those reasons? Well, uh, one I think would be evidential. Evidential, the 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 works show your faith, and thus also declare the glory of God, even on the last day. That sounds kind of like James two, where it says that uh, faith show that works show our faith, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes, and and and, and, and okay. 
there's so many ways you can go here, but definitely evidential. And I, I would say uh, if you, you one could talk about rewards in heaven, rewards that God gives freely. And uh, I don't think we can get into it now. But again, First Corinthians chapter three. Um, and, uh, and understand, though, that when we talk about evidences, we, we, we need to understand it deeper than just in a judicial sense. That, that those evidences are there because God has really done something in our lives. He has caused us to be born again through water and the word. He has caused us to be born again through the gospel of Jesus Christ, being brought to faith. He has regenerated us. We have a new birth. It's something we couldn't do for ourselves. It's something we could, I, could, I could no more born again myself than I could make myself be born the first time. It was God's work, it, but it is his work. It is real, and he works real sanctification in our life through that. And, and that's going to show up. That's going to be an evidence, and uh, that will show up on the last day. But you know what's kind of interesting? If you go to uh, Matthew 25, you know, the sheep of the goats judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you you go through that, and and have you noticed? Well, you sure have. Matthew twenty five. I'm turning to it, verse thirty one. Jesus never mentions anything bad, bad that the sheep have done. You know, if he wanted to do that, he could have listed a. He he could give each of us a long list. Could he not? In my case, he sure could. Oh heck yeah. Um, I know he could in your case, and I know he could in my case, too. <laughs> uh, Indeed. Yes, but he, he doesn't. Uh, you know, and, and why, why? Well, you know, as far as any thought of condemnation, well, that's already been taken. That's already been taken by our Savior. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God. Right? Um, and, and so you go through Matthew 25, sheep and goats judgment works are very important. And you see only the good works of the saved are mentioned there. Um, and then you have only the bad works of the, uh, of the unsaved, the goats that are mentioned there, you know, because why, why would that be? Because without faith it is impossible to please God. So there's no good work apart from the work of Christ. And so when when it talks about Christ judging the one who does good and the one who does evil, the Athanasian Creed probably has Matthew 25 in mind. Is that is that where you're going with this? Well, no, I, I don't know what they had in mind when they wrote the Athanasian Creed, but I know what I have in mind. And one of the things I have in mind is the sheep and the goats judgment. Sure, absolutely. Um, give an account concerning their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter into eternal life. Those who have done evil will enter into, into eternal fire. Listen, um, if he, well, okay, the easiest way in, to put this all together as far as the faith and the works go is, you know, that wonderful passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, as you well know it, right? And uh, what does Paul say? For by grace you have been saved, right? What's grace? Grace is a girl I used to date in high school, right? No, grace is, 
God's undeserved love. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And by the way, this faith is not of your, your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And then, and then, and then you have this word. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works. So, so what does is, what is this text tells, tell us? We're saved by grace through faith. It's not about us. It's about what God has done. But what God has done is create us also for good works so that the works are a fruit of faith. They're not the root of, of salvation. Fruit of faith, not a root of salvation. And, uh, and so playing that into the judgment, uh, those works are going to show themselves. They're going to be evidential in the last judgment. But it's still not an issue that our salvation is in question. It's already been determined. It's already true now. You are now inheritors of eternal life because you have eternal life in you. Uh, do you not know that you are in the temple? The Holy Spirit is within you. Uh, you know, uh, if you've been baptized, Paul says in Romans 6, you've been baptized into the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, you, you already... You already have what you need for your salvation because of everything that Jesus has done for you. And, and when that, uh, you know, that, that work not only forgives us and washes us clean, but that gospel is also alive in us and it sanctifies the person so that they, they uh, grow in holiness and sanctification. And that's going to show itself. It's going to be real. If it's real, it's real. And it's going to show itself visibly. And James talks about that. Um, faith without works is dead. So it's, it's real and it's going to show itself and it's going to be evident in the judgment. And so we don't need to worry that this creed uh, is in any way opposed to the teaching of Martin Luther when he talks about uh, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, as it's revealed in Scripture alone. Uh, th this isn't uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna at change all disjointed with, with that. I'm going oh, to change, change, gonna what, change I what you said. I mean, good. what you said is obviously right. But uh, even more important, this creed is not in contradiction to the Scripture. Over and over again, the Scripture talks about salvation by grace. It's a gift. It's not won by us, it's won by Jesus, and at the same time, in several places in the Bible, it talks about judgment by works. Saved by grace, judged by works. Why? Because the works are uh, evidential, absolutely. Finally, the last thing to kind of bring up in our conversation about the Athanasian Creed is it talks about how this is the, the Catholic faith. And I know that we got to visit about this a little bit in the episode that came out last week, but uh, this idea of the, the Catholic faith and whoever would be saved needs to believe it firmly uh, and faithfully and firmly. How do we understand the use of this word Catholic and, and the strength of our faith ultimately as God's work? Well, yeah, the, the, the strength of our faith is always God's work because without me, you can do nothing. You know, we have to be branches connected into the vine, which is Christ. We, we have our nourishment. We have our strength through him. 
and and uh, and uh, the power of the Holy Spirit working us uh, to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Uh, but uh, as far as the the Catholic goes, notice um, in the LSB it's spelled with a lowercase c because we're not talking about Roman Catholic. You know, the Roman Catholic Church, right? That's that's not the church. The church is all true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the church. And that's the church Catholic. That is the church universal. And we Lutherans are part of it. We're not the whole thing, by the way. We Lutherans are not the Catholic church and everybody else is not. You know, there is one body of Christ and it is not the Lutheran body. It is Christ's body. And uh, and we are all believers together, the Catholic Church. Now, we call ourselves Lutheran. I do, and I'm, I'm very pleased with that because we have a set of doctrines on which we stand uh, we, because we need to be faithful to the Word of God. But we're not the whole thing. The Baptist Church is not the whole thing. The Methodist Church is not the whole thing. The whole thing is all believers of all time and all places. That is the Catholic Church. So Small what's the C. importance? What's that? Small C. Absolutely. So what's the importance of of using creeds like this creed, the Athanasian Creed, or the Apostles' Creed, or the Nicene Creed, as we are all one church and we are part of that one body of Christ? Uh, confessing the creed together while still recognizing those places where we are working towards greater agreement on what Scripture says. Uh, so what is the importance of the creed? Right. Well, the, why, the importance why of the, do we why should we use this creed today? Well, it's an awesome creed. That's why we should use it. It is so <laughs> beautiful and complex. Listen, you 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 know, oh my goodness, we don't want I talked about this Sunday. We don't want to flatten out Jesus. We don't want to flatten out God. Oh, we want to have that full three-dimensional multifaceted picture of who God is in his being and in his attributes and his works. And having that more and more, it enhances our faith. It enhances the Christian life. And when we try to flatten things out according to human reason or for whatever reason, uh, it, it diminishes the faith and it diminishes our own personal faith and it diminishes our walk with God. Uh, but, you know, Jesus, no, excuse me, <laughs> Luther, you know, Luther said, I, I, I can't remember where he said this, Peter. He talked about well, the reason for creeds uh, because, you, you, you know, people twist the scripture like they twist a waxen nose or something of that nature. And, and in other words, creeds are there to to say in times of controversy, this is what we believe, teach and confess in more succinct manner than having the whole Bible in front of you. And, and, and these creeds act uh, as re reminders to, uh, of what orthodoxy looks like, reminders of what a faithful belief system looks like, and to, to, to keep us within those proper biblical uh, boundaries. And, and, and in a sense, it calls for Christian unity too, because it calls us back to, to the basics of what is true in Scripture. So the creeds are not above Scripture. The creeds, when they're a good creed, like the Athanasian Creed, they flow from Scripture, uphold Scripture, and thus 
uh, are a tool to uphold the unity of the church. Thank you so much, Pastor Oberdeek, for helping us to see this creed not as an addition to Scripture, but as a confession of Scripture, and most especially a confession of who our God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and our, especially our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, according to his divinity, but also the Son of Mary, according to his humanity, both and completely perfect God and perfect man. As we continue to uh, study together, to pray together, to live together as Christ's body, we do those very things that he has prepared beforehand for us to do. And so as we read and confess the Athanasian Creed, there's not a place for us to fear or to worry that our works will be judged and we will be found to be not faithful enough, not firm enough, and that our works will be lacking. Because when we are connected to our Lord Jesus Christ, the vine, he bears that fruit and he does the works in us that he prepared beforehand. And it is his work that is done in us and through us by his grace and by his mercy. And the perfect God and perfect man, Jesus, has covered us with his perfection and his righteousness, calling us his own. It has been a pleasure once again to be with you here on Concord Matters. as Pastor David Oberdeek has joined us from Trinity Lutheran Church in Lebanon, Missouri. And as I have gotten to sit in as Pastor Peter Ill, guest hosting for Pastor Smith, please keep him and his family in your prayers as his son is continuing to recover from an injury at home. But he does look forward to being back soon. And with that joyful assurance of our perfect God and perfect man, Jesus Christ, keep confessing, church. Church.